Uh, welcome today, uh, Mr. Polyev. Uh, thanks very much for, uh, for spending time with us today. Um, we want to uh, ask a range of questions from our regional editors, and I'll ask e each one of them when they ask a question to uh, identify themselves. I'm going to start you, though, with a very uh, quick question around uh, reforming the tax code. You've been very clear about the unfairness of the tax code, but I'd like to know what would be the first, second, third thing that you would do uh, as prime minister in terms of reforming it. Well, I've said I appoint a, ta a task force to reform and cut taxes to with with the very simple goal of rewarding work, uh, investment, and construction in Canada. So right now we have a system that is complicated and that punishes good behavior. Um, let's start with work. Um, we have high marginal effective tax rates on the next dollar earned. So if you're um, you know, a single mom earning $55,000 a year with three kids, you earn another dollar, you lose 80 cents of that dollar. Two clawbacks of your child benefit, other programs, and uh, taxation on your payroll and income. So that is a massive disincentive for work. So uh, that same single mother, she would earn, let's say, $25 an hour. Uh, she only keeps $5 of that extra hourly wage. Uh, so she's working for five bucks an hour, which is well below the minimum wage, but it is the effect of taxes and clawbacks on her next dollar earned, uh, which makes it harder for her to get ahead. And you can understand why a lot of people just say, forget it, I'm not going to take the extra shift. I'm not going to fight for that extra bonus because by the time the government gets its share, it's not really worth the effort or the sacrifice. And so it also means people just get trapped. Um, and uh, I think that if we can re reform our taxes to lower the mar marginal effective tax rates or meter, then people will have incentive to reward, to work hard and work harder and add more income to their families by adding more value to our economy. Second, um, our tax system is driving investment to other places. A former bank governor, um, David Dodge, calculated that Canadians invest 800 billion more in abroad than the rest of the world invests in Canada. And that's simply because uh, this is not an attractive place to get an after-tax uh, risk-adjusted return on investment. So we need to, to reform our business taxes to um, incentivize re reinvestment, building factories, buying machinery, uh, patenting new technology. Uh, the average American worker gets about six or $7,000 more investment from his or her, her employee in capital than do Canadian uh, workers. So you can imagine why American workers and other foreign workers are able to gain more wage earning. They're, they have more tools. Um, their businesses are investing more in machines and technology than ours are. I think part of that is because our system, our, our, our tax system punishes investment uh, and therefore we get less of it. So basically I wanna simplify it to reward work and investment generate bigger, more powerful inflation-proof paychecks and make our economy more self-reliant uh, So, by making it attractive to produce things here rather than just bringing them from abroad. Okay, great. We have a lot of questions for you this morning. So Eve Edmonds is next. Hi there. Thank you so much for being here. Um, yeah, Eve Edmonds, I'm uh, with the Richmond News. 
And in Richmond, you probably know we have a huge Chinese population. And my question was about the uh, last election, which was basically a ditto of the election before, with a couple of major exceptions, and Richmond being one of them. Our two conservatives lost their seats. It was quite shocking to see Alice Wong go down, who's been long serving. And Kenny Chu, at least, and, and a number of conservatives blame the conservatives stand on China and taking a hard stand on the well, calling uh, the Uyghur situation genocide and calling for a boycott of the Beijing Games. And as a result of that, he felt he got really um, attacked and smeared on the Chinese social media. So the question going forward is, do you think that was a strategic strategically was that a good move or maybe problematic and what would you do in the future in terms of human rights issues in china well i think we have to stand up for canada's interests and values uh, to be a voice for human rights and freedom around the world uh, but also to uh, stand up for our own people here at home Uh, i think the values of chinese canadians are the same as the values of the conservative party hard work family tradition uh, entrepreneurship, and I'm going to build uh, on that shared value, those shared values, um, with the policies I just mentioned: um, tax reform to reward hard work, incentivizing cities to get out of the way to let more builders build homes, so young people can afford to live in their own property, um, approving natural resource projects so we get bigger paychecks in Canada rather than importing our energy and other resource projects from abroad. Uh, these are going to be the things, the issues that I think ch- people in Canada of Chinese origin will uh, find very attractive in our policy agenda. Uh, and um, I think that's a, a unifying message for all Canadians. Ian? Thanks, Kirk. Uh, good morning, Pierre. Uh, thank you for, uh, for joining us. Uh, my name is Ian Jakes. I'm the editor with the uh, Delta Optimist newspaper. Uh, out here in Delta, we are, uh, currently have two uh, proposals, one by the uh, Port of Vancouver for uh, Roberts Bank T2, and then a competing uh, project from uh, Global Container Terminals. Both are uh, under review and both are under a lot of public scrutiny uh, in our community. Just wondering if you've got some comments or, or thoughts on uh, either of the proposals. Do you agree with either of the proposals, disagree with either of the proposals? Uh, what's your, your stance on, uh, on both of these projects out here in Delta? Well, I might have to study the specifics of each proposal before taking a position on either. Um, that said, I, I, we do need to speed up uh, the expansion of uh, the Port of Vancouver, make it more efficient, faster, so that we can bring, uh, so the goods and services can move quickly in and out of Canada. Um, as you know, uh, the uh, this is a, a province uh, that uh, this is a Pacific province. This is the province uh, that is the gateway to Asia for Canada, and uh, we need uh, the logistics and shipping business to for supply paychecks uh, right across British Columbia uh, and provide Canada with a gateway to the world. Um, so I think uh, you know our our ports have been jammed. Uh, for too long, and that is due largely to federal incompetence uh, and uh, bureaucratic gatekeeping. And uh, we need to speed up um, shipping commerce so that uh, we can get our products in and out and uh, supply our people with affordable goods and 
and uh, more powerful paychecks. Let's go up north now uh, to Matt. Thank you, Kirk, and uh, good morning, Mr. Polyev. Um, uh, Matt Preprost here. I'm the editor of the Alaska Highway News in Fort St. John, uh, home of the uh, Site C Dam under construction and the source of LNG going to the West Coast um, in Kitimat. Um, I wanted to come back to uh, something you'd said earlier uh, here in this interview um, about economic self-reliance. Um, and particularly as it relates to far-flung regions like Fort St. John, which are very far away from uh, the halls of power in Victoria and Ottawa. In my time here, there, I've, there's a sense of frustration among local politicians that they don't really get to control the destiny of this region compared to superior levels of government. And I'm curious to know your thoughts um, about what opportunities there might be to um, decentralize uh, so to speak, provincial and federal jurisdiction and return um, more autonomy to economic regions uh, throughout Canada. So we can have a little bit more control of um, region-specific economies instead of what, uh, the provincial and federal governments. What do you mean by decentralization? What, what would you, what, what uh, are you proposing or suggesting would be decentralized? Well, perhaps, I mean, obviously, uh, the, the statutory decision-making powers aren't, um, aren't uh, uh, rest with the provincial and federal, federal governments. I think for a lot of uh, um, project proposals, um, if decisions were made at local levels, we'd see um, different decisions being made, certainly up here, but uh, in, in other economic regions. So, um, I don't have any specific examples off the top of my right. head, but do okay. Get your thoughts well, on I can just speak economy. Yeah, Two, I think three. there has been too much centralization. Um, Justin Trudeau has um, imposed his um, top-down Ottawa knows best approach on numerous projects. I think, uh, for example, of um, his veto of numerous natural resource projects, his um, standing in the way of natural uh, LNG development. Uh, there's uh, the 15 proposed LNG projects that were under consideration when he took office. Zero have been completed. Only one is under construction. That, of course, is LNG Canada in Kitimat, um, but um, it is not even complete yet. Uh, he interfered with the Trans Mountain Pipeline, um, and now uh, we're that, that project is still not built and it's still over budget. Um, he is standing in the way of um, similar projects in eastern Canada. And that just means that we export less of our clean, green, um, low emission, low emission um, natural gas uh, exports, and that favor uh, more coal-fired electricity in Asia. So I think uh, we need to get the federal government out of the way when there are projects that have the support of First Nations that are protect the environment. Uh, the government of Canada should get out of the way and let them happen. Uh, we've become the country that can't get anything done. Uh, so we have to stop stopping and start starting. Um, and uh, that's what I propose we do. And I will get rid of Bill C-69 and replace it with a law that consults First Nations, protects our environment, but actually gets things done. Let's go next to Tyler Orton. Thank you so much for your time. This is uh, Tyler Orton from Business in Vancouver newspaper here uh, in the West Coast, where yeah. affordability is always on the minds of folks. You obviously visited, uh, you saw in that video, you posted uh, what a home is going for in Vancouver. 
Uh, we've had a menagerie of different policies and nothing is working here. Uh, what will you do to address housing affordability and, and what makes you confident that it will be effective uh, based on everything that we've seen come before? Well, the problem is that we have, we've been printing money and instead of building houses, uh, the federal government flooded the economy with easy cash over the last two years that boosted demand and the local governments have blocked supply with government gatekeeping. Um, the cost of government restrictions uh, is $650,000 for every Vancouver home. That's the cost of permits, of consultants, zoning delays, uh, lawyers, and countless development charges and taxes. $650,000 for one unit of housing just to pay for paperwork. Um, that has to end. So my government will link the number of federal infrastructure dollars the city of Vancouver gets to the number of houses that actually get completed. So that will incentivize the city to remove the government gatekeepers and lower the cost uh, and speed up the time frame for permits. Uh, second, I'm going to require that every federally funded transit station uh, have pre-approved permits for high density housing on all available land around it. So if you want a federal fund, federal funds for a transit um, network um, with stations in it, then the, the city is going to have to show that every available parcel of land near those stations is pre-approved for high density housing. Finally, I'm gonna sell off 37,000, sorry, 15% of the 37,000 federal buildings that are um, largely underutilized because of telework um, and because they were badly managed before the pandemic and sell them off and convert them into housing so that uh, they can become uh, shelter and lodging for our, our young people. Um, and we can use the proceeds of the sale to reduce our deficit. Um, so uh, finally, we need to expedite uh, immigration for construction workers and uh, lower taxes for young people so they have a bigger monthly paycheck that they can use for their mortgage payments. Let's go to Alec, uh, pardon me, to Mark Nielsen in Prince George. Hi there, and thank you. Uh, Mark Nielsen, Prince George Citizen, Prince George. Uh, and uh, just, just your thoughts on getting LNG from uh, Northwest British Columbia out to markets in Europe. And it does seem that Quebec is a bit of a, is a kind of the hurdle that we have to uh, clear. Well, interestingly, the public in Quebec supports LNG development, uh, though the political class has, uh, Justin Trudeau has killed um, the LNG Saguenay project. Um, there's a lot of support on the ground for it. Uh, and I will keep championing it and try to convince the provincial government to come on side. Uh, that would uh, create thousands of jobs for Quebecers uh, to liquefy natural gas, ship it to Europe, um, take the dollars away from dictators and turn it into paychecks for our welders, our, our energy workers and our people. Um, you know, uh, just today, Hungary announced it's going to sign a deal to buy more gas from Russia. Of course, uh, Germany is at its, on its knees begging Russia for gas just to uh, for the forthcoming winter. Otherwise, the people will freeze to death. So the choice is not between LNG and no LNG. It's between LNG and Russian gas. And uh, Trudeau's gatekeeping 
has prevented us from meeting that demand. As I said at the outset, there's been, there were 15 proposed LNG export terminals when Trudeau took office, zero were completed, one is underway. Um, that is entirely because uh, nobody knows how to get a project approved by this federal government. Uh, with Polyev as prime minister, you'll have someone who will approve projects and get them done. Let's go next to Alex. Uh, good morning, sir. Um, I was wondering that uh, we know, unfortunately, that you yourself and your family have experienced harassment and threats on the campaign trail. So I just wonder if you feel you're doing enough to condemn uh, both harassments to politicians, like we saw with Deputy PM Freeland, and also to journalists who have been undergoing a lot of recent targeted hateful campaigns, especially women and women of color journalists. Yes, I have condemned all of that, and I condemn all threats, intimidation, uh, and bullying, uh, and uh, we need to put a permanent end to it in Canada. And uh, as, as you said, I've been uh, the re on the receiving end a lot of it, um, and uh, I'd like to see more, uh, I'd like to see the Prime Minister try to work on uh, unifying the country rather than dividing. Uh, I also condemn the Trudeau government for funding um, this terrible anti-Semitic hate monger, uh, giving a grant for him to quote unquote for anti-racism. And uh, we find out now that he is a vicious racist himself. And um, I haven't seen Mr. Trudeau condemn that, which I think is very uh, appalling, uh, given that his government knew about this man's past and uh, did not continue to fund him under the guise of, uh, of, uh, of fighting racism. So uh, we need to condemn all kinds of extremism and threats and inappropriate behavior. And that's what I do. Thank you. Mark Falkenberg. Mark Falkenberg. Hi, uh, this is Mark Falkenberg. I'm the editor of the Burnaby Now, the uh, New West Record in New Westminster and the Tri-City News. Um, just a quick question. Uh, you have uh, very unambiguously called for an end to all uh, government vaccine mandates. Uh, which, as you've probably seen, uh, some of have raised the question, well, does this extend uh, to vaccines for childhood diseases such as polio, et cetera? Where would you draw the line for that? Would, that, uh, would an end uh, under a polyev government include uh, an end to uh, vaccines or mandated childhood vaccines? Childhood vaccines are delivered by provinces. I have not commented on that at all. Um, my comments have been exclusively on COVID vaccine okay. mandates. And uh, my bill is very clear. It deals exclusively with COVID vaccine mandates. And it uh, says that the federal government should not make the COVID vaccine a condition of employment or a condition of travel on federally regulated uh, transport like rail and air. I uh, would also get rid of the COVID vaccine mandate for crossing the border. Um, and uh, that is, I think, supported, but that is supported by science. Uh, it makes sense. It, it allows us to, uh, allows people to make their own decisions about the COVID vaccine. Which I think uh, is a fair and reasonable approach in a free country. 
Um, I think our question list is uh, done. Does any, do any other editors have a question? I have one more. Oh, yeah, Braden. Sorry. Go ahead, Braden Dupuy. Thanks, Kirk, and thank you for being here, Mr. Pauliam. Uh, it is Braden Dupuy, editor of Peak News Magazine in Whistler, where we have a perennial labor shortage at all times, but now we're seeing this Canada-wide. Lots of businesses can't find enough workers to staff their businesses and uh, make the money that's just being left on the table. What is your policy position on labor? How are we going to find workers uh, and immigration targets? Are you happy with what the Liberal government has set? Would you raise those, lower them, or how do you address our labor shortage? Sure, thank you. So um, I'll address immigration first. Um, I think we need to speed up economic immigration and we need to make it possible for employers who can't find Canadian workers to more quickly sponsor skilled immigrants who can fill the void. Um, I believe that an employer-driven approach will ensure that the the real demands on the ground drive the decisions rather than the theories of bureaucracy in Ottawa. So, you know, if a if a construction company is short five workers and they they've advertised the jobs can't get them filled, then they should be able to quickly sponsor new immigrants to come first as temporary foreign workers, but then they those workers should graduate quickly into permanent residency and eventual citizenship and the government of Canada should make that as quickly as possible. I like the express entry model, which uh, was more inclined for the professions, but I think we should expand it to all different occupations. Um, that model allows a very quick sponsorship work permit um, for workers from abroad who can then immediately work on becoming permanent residents. Uh, and if they, work hard, pay their taxes, follow all the rules, then they can quickly become PRs and citizens in our country. And, uh, but you know, right now it's so slow. There's over a million immigrants who are waiting, uh, waited past the mandated uh, wait times. There's 2 million overall in the queue. Um, the, I don't think we've ever seen such a backlog and uh, that is hurting, it's dividing families and it's depriving our businesses of a workforce that can supply us with the, the output we need as an economy. So I will speed that up and get it done. Canada needs immigrants. Uh, this is a nation built by, in large part by immigration and, and my uh, government will embrace that. I want to uh, conclude with a couple of questions. Uh, probably the, the top of mind um, question that uh, the British Columbians might have right now uh, as we're experiencing shortages of doctors uh, in a, a medical system that appears not to be uh, doing the job that Canadians expect of it. Um, mm -hmm. uh, there are no quick fixes in this, as you know, but what are some of the uh, long-term fixes that you would begin to, uh, uh, to implement that would put us back on a path where we can find family doctors, we can uh, reduce those wait times, we can get the surgeries that are needed, and particularly we can deal with an aging demographic. Uh, well, one is uh, to allow immigrant doctors to work. Um, we have international medical graduates here in Canada that have practiced medicine abroad to come here as immigrants to do the same, but then they um, are banned from their medical associations from getting a license to practice. And uh, they end up doing, uh, end up taking low wage jobs, um, deprived of opportunity while we're deprived of their desperately needed knowledge and skills. 
kind of, it makes my blood boil really to sit in a waiting room with my daughter for you know five hours. She has a migraine because there's a doctor shortage, uh, even though we have countless doctors that are here as immigrants that uh, could be doing those same jobs. Um, and um, so here's my plan. Um, I'm going to uh, sign, immigration is a shared responsibility with the provinces. I'm going to sign a deal with them uh, that would bring in a 60-day guarantee within 60 days of a, an immigrant applying to work in his or her profession. They should get a yes or no based on tested ability. Uh, I want to create a standardized testing system across the country for professions the way we already have for trades. Obviously, provinces would voluntarily opt into it the way they did to the, with the Red Seal trade program. That would allow us to quickly qualify people based on their abilities, not based on where they come from. Uh, third, I want, I'm going to make it possible for immigrants who are coming here to begin getting credentialed in their profession before they even arrive. Uh, with module work modules, they can start put, put working through in their country of origins. That when they get here, they're over the finish line and they can get right to work. And finally, my government's going to back up 30,000 small study loans for those newcomers who are not quite at the Canadian standard, but could be if they had six weeks of study and testing. And that would allow them to take time off work, study up, get licensed get working in their profession. And of course, medical graduates um, for both nursing and doctors would be uh, at the front of the list for that. So I think that is one of the biggest things that we can do is let's, let's put our brilliant immigrants into the jobs for which they are qualified and serve in our, our desperately needed uh, hospitals, um, our emergency rooms and uh, in our family doctor offices. Okay, uh, last question is a, is a self-interest one admittedly. Um, you know, you're on record as saying that you, of course, would defund the CBC, uh, but you've also been on record as saying that you would uh, uh, cut uh, the um, aid to publishers that the federal government is providing uh, so that it employs a lot of local area journalists. And uh, some of our publications on here actually employ some of these people. Um, specifically, given that the successive governments permitted Google and Facebook to consume the advertising market without any particular tax implications for those companies as they did so. Um, what would you do to reform that system? Uh, how, how, would you, how would you help that model so that, in, in essence, if that federal money disappeared, uh, there would be a business model in there? Well, a couple of things. One, I um, uh, my view is that uh, we, can, we can support um, diverse and independent media without uh, the sort of uh, centralized control that the liberals have imposed uh, in the the bailout fund that they put in place. I think the money should be d driven by consumer demand rather than by the bureaucracy in Ottawa. Um, secondly, with regards to the web giants, um, I have no problem with a model that allows media to get compensated by web giants for the uh, content those giants use. Um, and we just have to make sure that it doesn't, uh, the government does not discriminate and favor um, some media over other media. Uh, you know, it can't just be um, liberal media that gets the money. It has to be all voices. Uh, and uh, the, the legal framework for it should be neutral and should not discriminate between different uh, publications and outlets. It should uh, allow the, the marketplace to 
and the, the number of readers that people have to draw to determine that. Okay, I'll ask you one last little media question. What did you think of the uh, firing of Lisa Laflamme? Oh, <laughs> uh, look, I, I frankly, I've been a big critic of Bell Canada for a long time. I think that they they have interfered in the newsroom for many years. And of course, uh, Bell Media um, was very hard on the conservatives because we promoted competition in the telecom sector. We wanted to have more competition so that Canadians could have lower prices and higher uh, quality customer service. And uh, therefore, CTV and other outlets uh, was very hostile to the conservatives and has been ever since. So now we're hearing more stories of interference in news content by Bell Canada. And um, it's uh, disappointing, but not surprising. And um, anyway, it, it's a, uh, another reason uh, why Canadians are looking to other voices and other uh, news sources uh, than the traditional media in Ottawa and Toronto to get their news. Yeah. Well, Mr. Poliev, you've been generous with your time. We've taken your half hour. Thank you so much for your time today. And on behalf of our editors, I hope you'll come back and talk to us again. Excellent. Thank you very much for having me. All right. Thanks, everybody. Thank you.